Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Amen. What a song. My name's Ryan. I'm the worship leader here. Um, normally I would have the guitar um, around my neck, but I'm grateful for our team who step up and are able to take over to, yeah, it's okay, we can. Yeah. I'm honored with the opportunity this morning just to preach on something that's near and dear to my heart, which is music. And um, that's, that's what I would like to kind of explore with you today is the idea broadly of what it is that God has done when he's given us music, why it is that that's a gift to us. But specifically with this song, we're going to see in the song of Moses that God has called his people to sing. And there's a reason for that. And we'll get to that. The song in, that was just read was known as the song of Moses or the song of the sea. It's, it's full of cosmic significance, and I don't say that lightly or, or, or jokingly. Like, it's not an exaggeration. Literally, it has cosmic, eternal significance, this song. 
It's sung here in Exodus 15, but it also is at the end of the Bible in Revelation 15. In the middle, Solomon sings this song when the, de- the temple is dedicated. All throughout Scripture, there are all these references, all these allusions to this song. It's a central theme throughout the Bible that the people of God sing in times of victory. And the refrain is this, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. And as we'll see, it's not only a song that's sung right there by the sea of, of the Red Sea, but it's also looking backwards to this great victory that God had over creation. And we may not think of it in those terms, but the waters were chaotic and dark and void of substance and form. And God conquers over that death, that darkness, and He brings life from it. And it's it's a similar kind of battle that we'll see again. It also points forward to the time when our resurrection is fulfilled. The time when Christ has conquered the enemy and in fact called out His own people for His name. And so it, it looks forward. It looks backward. It's in the moment and it's, it's meant to be a song that sticks with us um, throughout our lives, throughout this, this path we're on to uh, the promised land. And so it's a song of profound significance that I hope to unpack today, but as we do, I I hope to answer at least two questions that are more relevant, I think, to us today in terms of what do we do with this song of Moses that was just read. Um, The first question is, why in general does God call us to sing? Why do the people of God sing? I said already there's just countless songs in the Bible, and and it's obvious that this is an important thing to God. Why? Why do the people of God sing? And secondly, what on earth could a, a song that was written 3,500 years ago have to do with us today? And so we'll look at this passage in light of that. But before we start there, I want to begin by just talking briefly about what the Bible tells us about music. It says a whole lot, but I want to just focus in on two, two key things, two key reasons why music is an important element in our lives. Whether you love singing, love music or not, this is, um, this is relevant to us for these reasons. Number one is memory. It aids our memory. So one of the key things that music is able to do is it accesses parts of our brain that, that aren't affected so much by the, the degradation, maybe, of our minds. And so, like, for example, in Alzheimer's patients, you'll, you'll hear these research and studies that'll say, you know, these people that can't recognize their own family can sing every word to Jesus loves me. And it's this profound kind of thing where you realize, man, it's actually accessing part of their brain that is, is not affected by that kind of disease. And so it's, it's in, in significant for our memory. It heightens mental stimulation. It gives us a more holistic encoding. That's actually language from the research. It's holistic encoding on us. And so when we hear music, it's not just something that we ascend to mentally. It's, well, yes, there's that, but it's, it's more than words. It's to a song because it accesses parts of our soul that otherwise are not accessed. And so music has a powerful effect on memory. And secondly, God gave us music. He, he wired us in a way that singing, when we sing, it engages our guts just as well as it does our thoughts. It engages our body, our vocal cords, our hands are clapping, are standing, we're moving. We engage our entire body when we're singing, but it also engages the heart and the ears, the spirit of the man, the 
whole soul, the whole being comes to God and sings. And that's a powerful thing to think about. For us, you know, it's, it's hard to maybe get there in our minds that this is such a powerful thing because for us, singing is largely an accessory to entertainment, right? We go to a baseball game or a football game or whatever, and there are songs that are sung traditionally at those events um, and national anthems, or we go to a concert to see somebody perform, or we watch a movie and we love the soundtrack. See, these are the, the contexts that we have music in, typically outside of these walls. But in ancient Israel, you need to understand, this was a far more significant thing to sing. Music and singing was the stuff that accompanied battles. They accompanied coronations, funerals, worship. And especially, we see throughout the Bible this theme that when there's a great victory, a great triumph over an enemy, the people of God break forth in song. And so the difference, I guess, between our context and the sporting world is that we may lose our minds when our team wins and sing our song, but in Israel's case, and in a a very profound spiritual sense even for us, these are songs not about made-up contests. These are real life and death matters. These are things dealing with eternal truths, significant. And so... God's given us music for all those kinds of moments. And you know, I think the only reason why Israel's music that are singing would be more exuberant than ours, and I don't just mean out loud like with our hands and dancing and everything. That's not everybody's personality. I get that. But inwardly and outwardly, there's this expression of music that the Israelites demonstrate in this, in this passage that's pretty convicting, really. And I think the only reason why it would be more exuberant in their case than ours is if we forget the magnitude of our deliverance. You know, they're standing beside the Red Sea that God just parted and collapsed on the most powerful army on the planet. And in a moment, they're swept away and they, they break out in song. And for us, it's this distant, yeah, God save me. I'm, you know, we're redeemed. We'll sing a song and it's all good, you know? This is a battle, guys. God has triumphed over darkness for you, for me. And we lose sight of that and it affects our song. But I hope this song in the Bible, Moses' song today, will remind us that these are the exact reasons why we sing. It's, we've been rescued from a far greater bondage than Egypt. We've been delivered through a wider Red Sea, this cavern, this eternal chasm between us and God. And we're promised a land that's not subject to the corruptions of this world. We're promised a land of eternal blessing and inheritance of Christ, a kingdom that will never end. And so Moses records for us this song, and it's just as meaningful to our journey today as it was in the days of Moses. And so with that in mind, I want to look at each passage of of this text, and the song begins in Exodus 15. It's titled, The Song of Moses, and in order to distinguish it from another song in the Bible, uh, in Deuteronomy, um, God tells Moses to write a song in Deuteronomy, and he says, 
write these words down because I want this to testify against my people for the rest of their lives, for all generations. And so in order to make it memorable, he puts it to, to song. And so that song is also referred to as the Song of Moses. Um, this one sometimes is referred to as the Song of the Sea. You may find that in some commentators, some commentaries. The Song of Moses in verse 1. Then, that is having just walked on dry ground through the sea, walled up on either side and witnessing the most powerful army on earth being crushed, swept away and drowned. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Those two phrases constitute the, the chorus or what we might call the refrain. And what that is in music is it it's the part of the song that keeps coming back. You know, you sing a verse and you sing the, the chorus. You sing a verse, you sing the chorus, a refrain. And it's the part that you kind of leave singing. You know, at the end of the day, you're going to be having, we're redeemed, we're redeemed, hallelujah, we're redeemed in your head. And that's the chorus. That's, that's what it's meant to do is it's meant to stick with you. And it's the hook of the song, which means it's, it's the thematic part, the thematic hook, the thematic big idea that's repeated and so this particular song, Moses' song, is, is separated into four stanzas. And I'll point those out to you as we get to it. But four verses, four song verses that are separated by this refrain. And you won't see this refrain written after each stanza, but without much question, there was this idea that this song was to be sung antiphonally. That means I sing a part and then you sing it back, something back to me. I sing a part, you sing something back to me. And so... Judging from the way this song ends, the fact that Miriam and the women at the end are the ones responding to, that, to the stanzas with their refrain, we might, we might assume that the men in this passage, Moses leading the men of, um, of Israel to sing these stanzas, these verses, and then the women would repeat uh, or would recite or sing this refrain, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. And then Moses leads into the first stanza, which begins like this. The Lord, and the Lord should be capitalized, and it should be in your Bible. You, you'll notice that L-O-R-D is capital, and that's intentional. It's, it's referring to the covenant name of God. You know, Lord can mean a lot of things, but Lord capitalized is referring to Yahweh God, the Creator, the covenant-keeping God. And in this particular context, it's a kind of a slap in the face, really, against the pagan gods, because Baal also means the Lord. Baal, they are pagan gods with different names. And it's saying very sternly, I think, and directly, the Lord, the Lord. Yahweh is my strength and my song. And He's become my salvation. That word is Yeshua, which is where we get Joshua and Jesus. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Moses had told the people in the last chapter, remember, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And Yahweh has kept His word quite dramatically so. Look how He fights for us, He says in verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and His host, He cast, now hang on to that word, cast. He cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods of judgment is the idea. Covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. 
Moses sings that the enemy has been cast into the sea, and it echoes what he sang already in verse 1, which was that the enemy has been thrown into the sea. And they together bookend this first stanza, the first verse of Moses' song. And the big idea here is that God is literally shoving down is kind of the intent of those words. It's, it's pushing down the enemy, and they are sinking like stones into the sea. And so what we find in this is, is interesting. You know, Matt mentioned at the beginning of the service that throughout this Exodus series so far, we've seen God leveling precise attacks against different gods, different pagan deity. Each of the ten plagues, they had purpose and real meaning to the people of that time. And this is, again, another instance where we see God exercising His justice, bringing perfect retribution against Pharaoh because, do you remember another thing, another time that we've heard about something or someone being thrown into water, cast away into the river Nile, the Nile River. Remember Pharaoh's order? He says, all the male babies, toss them in the Nile, throw them down, cast them downward. God's enacting perfect justice. And if you think about what really happened, now we don't know exactly where they crossed the Red Sea and therefore how high the walls of water were and that kind of thing, but we can make some assumptions based on the geography of the Red Sea. Um, If you think about the reality of what happened when the sea collapsed, casting them downward really is a pretty great way of putting it. Because most attempts to identify the location land on one of the two gulfs of the Red Sea. Again, we don't know for sure. The Gulf of Suez is the one is one gulf that they may have crossed the gulf of akaba is the other and the um gulf of suez the the first one is the more western one is 230 feet deep at its deepest point now i'm a scuba diver and that's really deep that's deep okay i don't know if any construction guys can tell us how tall this ceiling is thank you 25 feet construction guys they know this stuff I don't understand it. I don't have that capacity. But anyway, 25 feet. You look at that. That's nothing. 230 feet at its deepest point, these walls of water would be towering over these people. What a sight. The Gulf of Aqaba is no less dramatic. In fact, it is 6,070 feet at its deepest point. And either Gulf, depending on where you are on the map, is somewhere between 10 miles and 27 miles across. That would be the journey across the sea. So imagine a 10-mile-long, 230-foot, maybe 1,000, who knows? I wasn't there. I don't know. But again, we can imagine that, that, that why wouldn't God make it that dramatic? I mean, this whole thing is, is an amazing story. In the best-case scenario, okay, 100 feet, 100 feet of water, that is a crushing weight underwater. I, like I mentioned, uh, I love the the sea, I love the ocean, I love diving. And so I was fascinated, I did the math. Nearly two miles down at the bottom of the Red Sea, 9,970 feet, would exert a pressure of 4,457 pounds per square inch. And so the refrain, quite literally, 
says they're cast down into the sea. I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. And then we enter into the second verse, the second stanza. And here he's going to use a poetic technique called an anthropomorphism. What it is a fancy word, a fancy way of saying, we're going to describe God who is spirit with human attributes. So we're going to read about his arm and his hand and his, his nostrils and his breath. And so it's actually kind of interesting if you think about it. Describing them this way makes them quite personal to us, doesn't it? We have hands, we have arms, we have breath. And it's, it's as if we're now descending in the text into a place where now we realize that God himself is walking through with us. In verse 6, the song continues, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And again, this is intentional language because that word stubble is the same word that's used when Pharaoh denies the Israelites straw with which to make their bricks. If you remember the evil taskmasters, they're now requiring the same quota of daily bricks to be produced in Israel, but they are now making it far more difficult, removing the straw from them. And, and it says here, now they're consumed like that straw. At the blast of your nostrils, and that word actually is ruach, which is the Hebrew word for the wind or spirit. It's the same word that's used in the very beginning of the Bible. The waters of chaos, you know, the earth is formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. It's the, the same word that's used here. Now, though, instead of bringing forth life and creation, the blast of God's nostrils piles up the water, it says, and the floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed, that means they became more firm and, and become like a wall in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I'll overtake them, is the, is the intent. It's, I'll divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them, and I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And you can hear this arrogance in there, this self-reliance. And as was common in poems like this, poems of victory, the victor would put in the mouth of their enemy these kinds of taunts as a way of mocking them, as a way of saying, yeah, okay, you and your big tough sword, way to go, buddy. It's not, not the case at all. You were, you were boasting about how powerful you are. You're powerless to even bring the first thing to pass. You're killed by water of all things. It's over in an instant. And in the classical literary sense, this is comedy. It's not the ha-ha, dumb and dumber kind of funny. It's the, it's the classic comedy where the underdog, the lowliest of, of the low, the men, women, and children on their feet traveling through a wilderness backed up against an ocean are now going to somehow defeat the greatest army on the planet. That's comedy, where God, in this case, takes the fortunes of Israel and Egypt and reverses it entirely in a moment. When all seemed like it, all hope was lost, in verse 10 he says, You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. It's the reverse of creation. He breathes his wind in creation, and what happens? He separates the waters and he brings forth dry ground and life. In this case, he's blowing 
and the seas that were ordered in their perfect stillness have returned to their chaos and have consumed them, removed their life from them. And then we would find the refrain, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown, he's cast down into the sea. Now we enter into the third stanza where we'll celebrate specifically God's supremacy over other pagan gods. There's been, there have been hints of that all along, but this particular verse is going to focus in on that idea that God, Yahweh, is more powerful than the other gods. Now if you rewind the tape a little bit, back to the beginning of chapter 14, we're told some information that, honestly, up until relative recent history, we didn't know what to make of it. But at the beginning of chapter 14, God says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back. So deliberately change the course you're on. Turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirot between Migdol, which is literally a fortress, an elevated fortress, and the sea. The bottom line of all of that is God has intentionally backed them into a corner that's indefensible. Now, here's where it gets interesting because then God says that they're to encamp in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Baal Zephon, in 1922, archaeologists discovered an archive of tablets from the ancient Ugaritic people. And on these tablets were outlined in quite explicit detail the, the Canaanite creation myth. And with that, some information that we can glean about their gods. And one of the gods is named Baal Zephon. And he is, in fact, the creator god in the Canaanite creation myth. Baal Zephon is also a mountain location. And it's named after this Canaanite god of creation. The mountain itself was worshipped. And the god that it represented, it's his sanctuary, if you will. And the way that the, these tablets that they discovered describe the creation myth of Canaan was that there was this, this god named Yom, and he was representative of the sea, of the ocean, of the salt water, briny water. And he was personified as a serpent, which is interesting. And as a serpent, he wraps himself around the earth covering it in, in salty water until he has engulfed the entire earth, suffocating its ability to produce life. Now, creation happens, according to this myth, that it comes along this Baal Zephon, God of creation, and he triumphs over in a great battle, a cosmic battle. He conquers over this serpentine, briny sea, God. And this is how he does it. He takes his club, his wooden club, and he stretches out his arm and he destroys this serpent's head. Then he takes that watery serpent and he rips it in two. He divides it. He then brings forth dry ground with which he is able to seed life. And then he establishes this mountain, Mount Baal-Zephon. still there. I don't know exactly if that's the right mountain that they've identified, but um, it's pretty fascinating to look at. 
Because the idea here is that God has intentionally put this story in a, in a way that people in this day would have known. That was the 16th century B.C., 150 years before Moses when those tablets were, were written, when they were describing the, what would have been just common knowledge for them. And so after Baal-Zephon has established his mountain, he puts on the top of it a sanctuary, and that's why people worship this God of creation, because he was able to conquer over the mighty water. And it's this very mountain, Baal-Zephor, that God says, I want you to camp right here. I want you to face that ridiculous mountain. I want to do something that's going to show who's God. So what's the message? He's sending a message. So what is it? Yahweh, the true creator God, he's engaging in a battle against Pharaoh, who is, in the eyes of his people, a god. And he is represented by a serpent. And the text calls him, in fact, serpentine, because he is identified with a serpent on his head. Now he's also, Yahweh God is also defying this Canaanite god. Both Yom, the disorderly water, and Baal-Zephon, the one who has said, I'm the creator God. And standing at the sea with Egypt behind them and Canaan, where this myth has come from, in front of them, and both, in fact, the sea and the armies of Pharaoh encircled the people of God and trapped them. And the gods, it's the idea is they're moving forward into Canaan, and now we're looking to, to destroy the idea of Canaanite gods. We've already made pretty clear messages back here in Egypt. We're, now we're looking ahead to Canaan. And what does he do in the Red Sea? We read it last week. God Almighty looks at the, the sea, the Red Sea, which throughout Scripture is emblematic of death and chaos. And the people of God are only delivered to life after God splits the body of of the sea in two. Moses, he raises his wooden staff and God uses that somehow to, by his power, to split that sea in two. He brings forth dry ground, not muddy ground, as we would expect, dry ground. And he marches his people to his holy mountain sanctuary on the other side. First at Sinai, where he establishes his people with his law and his covenant. And ultimately, it's a foreshadowing of the, the Garden of Eden, where we're returning. Where, you know, the new heavens and the new earth, it's a return to the beginning before sin and corruption have destroyed what was perfect and, and glorious in God's eyes. And so, he is signaling the deliverance of his people, spiritual Israel, not just those who identify nationally as an Israelite, but those who spiritually identify with Christ as the head. He, the headship of Christ, meaning his covering, if I trust and believe in Christ Jesus, that he is my better Moses, leading me through a great redemption story. And so Moses sings, no doubt with that mountain in view, who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? 
who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your hand. And as for those gods who engulfed the earth with death, the earth itself swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And that brings us to the fourth and final stanza, which we're going to now point forward to God establishing Israel as His people among pagan nations. You know, Canaan is a wicked place. That's where they're going. They're, they're headed there to conquer and settle in that land, but it's surrounded by wickedness. We're going to look forward to how is God going to place His people in the midst of, of such wickedness in the nations. Before they even get there, before Israel has even arrived, we read in 14, the peoples have heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. See, the nations, these wicked nations have now become congealed and like the sea. They've become these stones that have sunk just like the Pharaoh and his army. They've become still been as stone. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And here again, he's going to speak toward this mountain, toward this God. You will bring them in. He's speaking to Yahweh. God, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Yahweh, the Lord, which you have made for yourself, for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. He's recreating that creation myth only to say, yeah, you got it wrong. You got it all wrong. I am Yahweh. I am the one who has created all things. I alone have power over the, over the chaos and deep. And then the song closes with one final refrain. And we're told in verse 20 that Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them this refrain. Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. And so... He has triumphed for you. He has cast down the darkness and the evil that once entangled you. Whether you know that or not, you do now. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, it says that you have now been set free if you have put your faith in Jesus the greater Moses. And He has led you from captivity in your sin. And the death that is its consequence. Through death Himself, He took on Himself. He passed through death, living the perfect life. And then on the other side, he, said, he calls his people out and establishes his holy sanctuary on the other side. It's, it's really a, this is one of the most, I don't want to say most important because all of it's important in the Bible, but this, this, this passage about the Red Sea guys, this is your story. 
And it's, it's profound, and it's awesome if you think, really think about it. And so I, I want to circle back. We, we, I said at the beginning, I wanted to answer a couple questions that might be on your mind or might be relevant to today. The first is, why do the people of God sing? And we said that, well, for one thing, it aids our memory. It makes God's truths unforgettable. And as, a, as an aside, just a footnote, it also makes the lies and the evil that we listen to in music unforgettable. It imprints something on us. And I'm not, I'm not one of these teetotalers that says don't listen to the radio. I'm, I'm telling you that we're in, we are imprinted upon when we, when we are absorbed, when we're processing music, even on a physiological scale, it's doing something in our brains that God's wired that way to possess His truth. And so we need to be careful how, what we let in, what we let into our memory. But music, it's powerful for that purpose, memory. Secondly, we said that it's, it's for the engagement of the whole soul. So when I sing in church, I'm using every facility God's given to me to respond to the victory that He has won for me. And it is, in fact, not an exaggeration to say that what we sing here in church, it's a matter of life and death. These things that we're talking about, it's, it, it's not a story. It's not some fable. God has proven over and over and over and over again that His Word, His person, Yahweh, He alone is God. And if we scoff at that, well then I think we have reason to be concerned for the sudden judgment. I think we might have reason if we don't find ourselves under the cloud that is Christ Jesus walking with us through this, leading us through this, then we have reason for concern. But we also asked, what does this Red Sea story, this song of Moses written 3,500 years ago have to do with us? We've sort of teased some of that out already, but I want to read to you specifically from a vision of heaven in Revelation. This whole narrative is foreshadowing what I'm about to read. Revelation 15, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. Does that sound familiar? Which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea, not a red sea, but a glass sea mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And what did they sing? The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Later in that same vision in chapter 17, it's explained that the immoral nations of the earth are, metaphorically, are this, the waters of the Red Sea. They're, the nations are this chaotic death. They are wicked cities, wicked nations. And what God's describing when He, when he not only narrates this, narr- this Red Sea narrative, but when He puts in Revelation a vision in front of us what it is that our final deliverance will look like, what He's doing is he saying, I'm the greater Moses. You are my spiritual Israel, my people, under the headship of Christ, the greater Moses. 
And it signals the deliverance of man, not just Israel. It, just, it signals the deliverance of man, the spiritual people of God. And they're delivered under the leadership of Christ who's passed through the water of death and brought us from death to life with Him into the promised new heavens and the new earth where He will establish His sanctuary on the hill where we will forevermore in paradise be worshiping the King, singing songs of triumph and victory when He has at last finished the great work. Now, in the meantime, we have a problem because we're still in the wilderness in this story. We're not in Revelation yet. Uh, we're still in the wilderness. We're, we're walking. God's leading us through trials, through seasons of life, highs and lows. He's challenging us at times to trust in Him instead of our things in rather dramatic ways. And so, if we learn anything about ourselves from this Exodus study, I hope that at the very least we, we realize that we're the stubborn Israelites, Right? We're the, the, the complainers, you know, next chapter. We're not going to get like years down the road. I'm talking next scene. Israel's grumbling and complaining and fearing for their lives again. And, you know, we all can kind of laugh at it and go, yeah, it's, that's ridiculous. I would never. How often have I walked out of here, having met with God Almighty, heard His word loud and clear, walked out those doors and lived however I wanted to. If this is the Word of God, well, then we better stay vigilant. We need to stay vigilant against sin and idolatry. Listen, none of us will get it perfect, but God tells us to be always stirring that pot, so to speak, stirring up the Spirit of God and His work within you to combat sin, to combat idolatry, lest we find ourselves entangled. See, it's for our own good. It's for His glory, but it's for our good that He tells us these things. And He says, I don't want you to be enslaved again to sin and death and its corruptions. And so, we should be vigilant. And Jesus Himself is our provision for that purity, for that perseverance in this life. Jesus Himself, He is the pillar of cloud and fire who stands between you and the armies of the enemy. He stands between you and an eternal death. He is the pillar of cloud and fire who stands above and below, before and behind you. You know that song that we sing, Christ Be All Around Me? That's what we're describing. Christ is that pillar. He will be our manna in the wilderness. He will be our water. See, we have spiritual hungers and thirsts that can't be filled with these physical things that we invent. And so He provides for us manna in the desert and water of His Spirit and Word. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, makes that point explicit. And I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, 
and the rock was Christ. What about you? A moment of introspection. What about you? Can you say for certain that you're under the cloud of Christ today? Or do you fear that suddenly you may be swept into the eternal abyss? You who have been redeemed, who have been baptized into Christ, remember the magnitude of your deliverance because this is no small thing. This is no small victory. The lengths that Jesus, the greater Moses, has gone to in order that you might be freed from sin's curse and delivered through death to eternal life in Him. Consider that. And then when we gather together as a congregation, really and truly, this isn't some tactic. This is, this is real. If you truly believe this, then we'll gather as a congregation and sing as though it's a matter of life and death. Because it is. We're speaking of radical salvation here. And when we sing a song like We're Redeemed, or the reckless love of God that comes and chases me down. Like, we sing about these things as though they are real and matter, because they do. And with that, I want to close us in prayer and encourage you guys, uh, myself included, I've been challenged through this message. Stay vigilant. We're on the journey. No, He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's given us His Word. And there are far greater treasures to be had than we can even imagine. All right, let's pray. Yahweh God, we humble ourselves before You, the author, the creator of all things. You alone, Lord, have power to subdue the evil, the spiritual darkness of our world, the sin, Lord, that we commit, the sin that's in each of us, You alone can teach us, Lord, to walk in faith and not by sight. That we wouldn't be terrified by the armies that pursue us. We wouldn't be concerned with what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink. Lord, that we would remember just the amazing, dramatic rescue that You have won for us. And Lord, that that would cause in us a real and genuine response in singing, in prayer, and in the way that we live our lives. Lord, may it all just overflow from gratitude for what you've done. Make these things more real to us, Lord. Give us a vision. By your Spirit, Lord, remind us that these things are even more real than our very life here because they're everlasting. So, Lord, teach us to ponder these things. Teach us vigilance in the battle. And may your grace be with us, Lord, as we go today. In Jesus' name, amen.